So we're in Daniel, and we're going to start Daniel chapter 7. And as I said last time, a couple of things about Daniel. The first six chapters are by way of establishing Daniel's character. You have the things like the lion's den and him refusing to eat the king's food and that kind of stuff, all of which establishes his character as a righteous Jew. Also, as I said before, most scholars, for whatever that's worth, are of the opinion that Daniel was actually written sometime after the time of the Maccabees, which would have been the second century B.C. The reason they believe that is because the events in the prophetic sections of Daniel are very, very accurate with respect to the events that go on between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies and that kind of stuff. I also believe the language leads them to think that. I'm not really qualified to talk about that. The thing that I said a couple times ago is in the book of Matthew, Yeshua himself issues a prophecy which has a prophecy of Daniel's in it. So from my perspective, I don't really care when it was written because what Yeshua has done is he has authenticated the prophetic sections of Daniel, which is what we're starting tonight. Uh, chapter 7 begins the prophecy sections of Daniel. I don't have any particular reason to doubt when Daniel was written other than just tell you what everybody thinks. But the prophecy section I regard as authoritative simply because Yeshua said it was. One other thing. Remember, a time or two ago, we had Belshazzar's feast. So the organization of the book is the first six chapters are historical and sort of cover Daniel's entire life. So now this chapter 7 is going to go back out of sequence in time to the time when Belshazzar was king, which is the time before the feast, which happened back in chapter 5. And so by the end of chapter 6, you've sort of got all of Daniel's life. So now what's happening in chapter 7 is we're recounting a vision that he receives, but the vision was actually contemporaneous with the events in chapter 5. Chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Lots of dreams in the Bible. Of course, Pharaoh has dreams. Nebuchadnezzar has dreams. Joseph has dreams. I'm sure everybody here has had dreams. And I don't know about your dreams, but I can have the most vivid dream, and by 10 o'clock in the morning, I've forgotten what it is. And all I can tell you is I had a vivid dream, but I don't remember what it was, unless I write it down. So what this is saying here is Daniel had this vivid dream and he, I am assuming, immediately upon waking up, wrote it down as opposed to just trying to remember it. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night and behold the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. In biblical typology, the sea represents the Gentile nations. And so you have the winds which are stirring up the Gentile nations, and winds are in something that's under control of heaven, 
And so the idea here is these beasts are coming out of the nations. They are not Jews or Hebrews. So verse 3, And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. So the first one is obviously Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And by the way, the symbol of Babylon was a winged lion. If you go to the British Museum, one of the things that they did in the 19th century, I would imagine, when Britain was running all over the world taking stuff back to Britain, they took the gates of Babylon back to Britain and they set it up in a museum. And you can go online and you can see it on the internet. And the gates of Babylon, they are lined with ceramic tile and there are ceramic tile winged lions on the gate. So winged lions, if you will, were symbolic of Babylon. The lion having its wings plucked off and lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it, I believe is talking about Nebuchadnezzar. Because remember we had the vision of the statue with the four metals, and the head which was of gold, the interpretation was that's Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. So the first beast here is Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, and of course Belshazzar gives up the kingdom when he's conquered. That's the first of your beasts. So verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth and was told, Arise, devour much flesh. That is Medeal Persia. And remember, the Medes and the Persians are the ones that conquered Babylon and took out Belshazzar. The Medes and the Persians were sort of a joint empire, but the Persians were much stronger and wound up absorbing the Medes. So being up on one side, the idea is they are unequally yoked. One is much more powerful than the other. Medeo-Persia took down three kingdoms in the process of raising up. First one it took down was Babylon, then it took down Egypt, and I believe it took down uh, Parthian. But the point is, the three ribs in its mouth represent the three kingdoms that they conquered as they rose to power. Think about a bear as it's sort of big and heavy and ponderous, and I am told, although I have not studied this myself, that the Persian army was massive. One of the things we'll see in a minute is the winged leopard. That will represent Alexander and Greece, and one of the characteristics of the Greeks is that they were very fast moving. Persia was not. Apparently they depended on lots and lots of troops in the field. And you know the Battle of Marathon, where we got the Marathon race from? Marathon is in Macedonia, Greece, and you've got a choke point where in order to come down the peninsula, you've got to go through this narrow choke point. The Persian army was on one side and there were these 300 Spartans defending that gap. For those of you who are in 
any kind of conservative movement in the United States are, are familiar with the term Molda Labe, which means come and take it. That's from this battle. The Persians said, give up your weapons, and they said, come and take them. The Persian commander said, we will fire so many arrows into the air that it'll blot out the sun. And the Spartan commander said, then we'll fight in the shade. They did manage to hold them off. And that was the farthest advance of the Persian Empire. They, when they got stopped, that was sort of their high watermark. One of the things about the Persians and the Greeks, though, is as a result of this and other things, they don't like each other. So when Alexander goes back the other way, he really doesn't like the Persians. One of the things that he'll do is when he comes to Jerusalem and the high priest came out to meet him as Alexander's there with his army and the high priest proceeded to tell Alexander of himself from prophecy and it impressed Alexander so much that he left Jerusalem alone. So when he goes up against the Persians there is no such collegiality, I guess, is the word. He just takes them out. The reason we get the name of the race, Marathon, is at the end of the battle, they sent a runner back to report on the victory. And he ran for 26 miles to go back and report it. And in fact, he showed up, reported it, and died on the spot. So anyway, the bear then is the Medes and the Persians up on one side represents the Persians are much stronger than the Medes and then the three ribs represent the three kingdoms that they conquered in the process of their reign. So verse 6, after this I looked and behold another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back and the beast had four heads and dominion was given to it. The third beast is Greece under Alexander and since you all have read the book of Esther and the Maccabees, you realize that Alexander did all of his conquests as a fairly young man. He came out of Greece, went all the way to India, and conquered everything in between. Took Greece, took Egypt, took out the Persian Empire, and went all the way over to India. The characteristic of the Greek army it was that they moved quickly. In fact, the Greeks fought naked. So they were able to move very quickly, probably had to. So the four heads is when Alexander died, and I think he died in his 30s, a very young man. He left no heirs. I think he actually had a son, but the son, I think, was murdered. And he had four generals who were his commanders, and his empire was divided up among the four generals, the two that are of interest to biblical prophecy are Seleucus and Ptolemy. Ptolemy got Egypt. Seleucus got Syria. The book of Daniel deals with the rivalry between those two going over several hundred years. The point is that Alexander at his death, and I think he died somewhere in Persia, didn't provide for succession and just said, Whoever's strongest, take it. And the four generals divided it up. And as I say, from the biblical perspective, we're only really interested in two, 
which is Ptolemy and Seleucus. So then we get verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. He had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. We'll get to the little horn in just a minute, which is the place that most people fetch up. Verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, that's a million, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So he's got this vision of four empires, and at the end of that part of the vision, he then gets a glimpse into the throne room of heaven and sees God, and and the idea is, of course, that God is going to judge what happens on the earth as opposed to the kingdoms who are themselves trying to determine what happens on earth. So verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. This is the little horn. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. What you have just gotten in verses 11 and 12 is most of the book of Revelation. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And of course, that's the Messiah. What he's seeing is from where he is, and and at the time of the dream, where he is, Babylon is still going concern. Because remember, the vision is at the time of Belshazzar. So Belshazzar has not been destroyed at the time that he has this vision. So Babylon is there. The Medes and the Persians are not yet there. And certainly the Greeks are not there and the Romans are just a glimmer in their eye because it'll be quite a while before the Romans come up. So he's looking future from the perspective of Babylon. And he sees all the way to the end of days in this series of visions. We'll talk about the fourth empire in just a minute. I want to get the text out of the way and then we'll come back and we'll deal with all the speculation. Because figuring out who the fourth kingdom is and figuring out who the little horn is and all that kind of stuff is great indoor sport, no heavy lifting, anybody can play. Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who will arise out of the earth that the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. As I said, this is the book of Revelation in 25 words or less. 
Verse 19, Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broken pieces and stomped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, before which three of them fell, and the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, the horn made war with the saints, and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Who are the saints? They're the Hebrews. From Daniel's point of view, the saints are the Hebrews. We don't have Christians yet. So as he's talking about saints, he is talking about the Hebrew people. So 22 again. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down and break it into pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end, and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. From Daniel's perspective, that would be the Hebrews. 28. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. All right, so now, obvious question is the fourth beast, and of course, historically, it's Rome, and we'll see in Revelation that there are things like seven hills and so forth that also help identify it as Rome. Rome was somewhat different than the previous empires. Rome, in a sense, has never really gone away. So, for example, as Rome itself lost influence and dissolved, there were attempts by various European countries to reestablish Rome. You had the Holy Roman Empire for quite a while. That was headquartered in, I believe, Austria. The German Kaiser, Bismarck, that's German for Caesar. The Russian Tsar, Tsar is Russian for Caesar. So all of the major players in Europe have been trying to reconstitute the Roman Empire ever since the original empire came apart. And there have been a number of kingdoms that have come up out of the Roman Empire. And I am not going to try and enumerate 10 of them for you. There are people who say that it's the European Union. I read a really interesting article that says it's the Roman Church. Why do I think that's interesting? First off, the Roman Church is a country. The Vatican is a state with its own ambassadors and its own borders and, and all that. It's a very tiny state, hence a little horn. The Vatican is a very small area in Rome, but it is legally a separate state. 
as the Roman Empire was breaking apart, this article I read said that the Pope had the secular authorities destroy three kingdoms. I don't remember what they are right off the top of my head. I don't have that article in front of me. One of the things the Pope does is says that he has authority to change the law. So, for example, he changed the worship day to Sunday. He changed times and seasons. And it is a big deal in Christendom trying to figure out when Easter is on their calendar. They have the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. That's how they determine Easter. The only two of God's appointed times that the Roman church recognizes as first fruits, which is the Sunday after Passover, or when they think Passover is, because they don't synchronize with Passover per se, and then 50 days later is Pentecost. The reason that they keep first fruits is that's Resurrection Sunday. That's the day that Messiah rose from the dead. And then Pentecost they regard as the birth of the church, giving of the Holy Spirit. And don't get me wrong, the distancing between Christians and Jews was mutual. The Jews were pushing these idiots out of the synagogue, and the idiots were pushing the Jews away because they didn't want to appear Jewish. Unfortunately for the Jews, the Christians are far more massive, so that when the Christians get cranky with the Jews, it's really very dangerous. The Jews aren't in a position to get cranky with the Christians. But the point of this article was, one of the things that the little horn does is he changes the times and he changes the laws. The Pope has disconnected the Christian calendar from the Jewish calendar, the Hebrew calendar. So he's changed the times. He's changed the Sabbath from Shabbat to Sunday. There's no biblical justification for Sunday being the Sabbath. The Pope just did it because he has authority to do so. They firmly believe that the Pope has the authority to change the law. And the Jewish rabbis do the same thing. So the rabbis will also make changes to the law. That was what Yeshua was duking it out with them during the uh, Gospels. Hey guys, what you're doing isn't in accordance with Moses. Yeah, but it's not in heaven. We get to make those decisions. So the Pope is the descendant of the rabbis in that attitude. So, the idea that you have a little kingdom, areas very small, this little kingdom, in fact, destroyed three other kingdoms. They didn't do it themselves, but they had the Romans do it. You have the idea that this little kingdom, the king of it, thinks that he is able to change times and the law. And one of the things that you will notice about that little kingdom is the Catholics have been very vigorous persecuting Jews and dissident Christians. One of the things that Arthur Tyndall got burned at the stake for was he had a copy of the Bible in the vernacular. And the Catholic Church caught him and had him burned at the stake. I don't burn at the stake. They had him executed. I think he was probably burned. The other time thing that got changed by Rome, I, I assume it was by Rome, I don't know, is instead of having the day begin at sunset like the Jews do, it begins at midnight. By the way, I'm not particularly advocating this. I am simply pointing out the similarity.
alternative to the Roman Catholic Church is Islam, and you can make a good argument there. I'd, I'd say I'm not particularly advocating any of these positions. I mean, I'd say it's indoor sport, no heavy lifting, anybody can play. Yet another perspective is the United States. Basically, Rome keeps moving. And when we were under Obama, I could sort of see that one maybe happening. Now I'm not so sure. And again, I am not pushing any of these particular ideas. If you do a Google search on cities on seven hills, there's a bunch of them. Seattle, for example, is a city on seven hills, with, which is a seaport. And when Babylon is destroyed in Revelation, it talks about a seaport city on seven hills. There's actually quite a few cities in the world that are on seven hills. Do a Google search on it. It's interesting. Rome is obviously the most famous one because that was sort of its signature characteristic. So it was always referred to as the city of seven hills, literature and everything else. So that's what leads people to Rome when you say seven hills, but that is not exclusive at all. One of the things that any Catholic priest who knows anything will freely admit, and they don't try and hide it, is that when the church would advance into a new region or country, they would take pagan holidays and they would slap Christ over the top of them. That's how we got Christmas. And so the Catholics freely admit that when they would move into a new area, they would suck in the pagan customs because the people there were already used to it and they just slap Christ over the top of it and keep right on going. There were a couple of things that were big deals in the early church. Uh, one is, of course, the calendar. That, that consumed tremendous amounts of intellectual bandwidth trying to get the calendar right. The other one was Christology. Who is Christ? And what you have is you have a Hebrew Yeshua runs into a Greek Jesus. They're doing philosophy about this and they're saying, well, is he truly God? Is he of one substance with God? Uh, was he a really good man that God adopted and the spirit fell on and, and just all sorts of arguments in the church and one of the points of these various councils was that was where they duked this stuff out and the big deal with the council of Nicaea was that's where the argument between the Alexandrian branch of the church Alexander Egypt and the Roman branch of the church and You've heard the uh, expression, it doesn't make an iota worth a difference. It turns out that there's two Greek words that differ only in the letter iota. And one means exactly the same as, and one means the same but not exactly the same. And the difference is an iota. And Council of Nicaea was to figure out which one of those Greek words describes Christ. And they decided that Yeshua was of the same substance as God, as opposed to like God, or in the image of God, or anything like that. Lots of mischief happened in these councils, but most of the time it was Greek-thinking people trying to wrap their heads around a Hebrew religion, and with limited success, quite frankly.